0: Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, a podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices' most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy... The Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Natasha Washington, President and Founder of ATW Health Solutions and sponsor for the Patient Partner Innovation Community. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com.
2: Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. I am your host, Desiree Collins-Bradley, and I am super excited to have our special guest with us today. Our special guest is Ms. Lisa Sloan, and she is going to spread her wisdom and knowledge of all things data. You guys know that in order for us to drive change in the healthcare environments, we talk a lot about data, 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 data. Well, Ms. Mm-hmm. Lisa is going to share with us the how, the what, the who we need to be doing with data so that we can drive the change that we need. So without further ado, Ms. Lisa, please welcome, introduce yourself to our listeners and guests.
1: Thank you very much, Desiree. It's wonderful to be here with you today. I'm very honored that uh, you and Natasha asked. So happy to be here and greetings to all of your listeners. My name is Lisa Sloan and I'm the founder and CEO of More Inclusive Healthcare. More Inclusive Healthcare is a social enterprise and we exist to walk on the journey toward greater health equity uh, we do that by supporting health equity champions, folks that are in the field, on the front lines, trying to provide the best patient care possible to all patients. So those are uh, really important values for us. And me as an entrepreneur, uh, I live, sleep, breathe, eat, more inclusive health care. I've been very fortunate and blessed to uh, have a calling to do this work, um, you know, I was uh, sharing with you uh, in a previous conversation that you know I um, was born into a mixed race family in the 1960s. My father and mother, but they're both deceased. My father was black, and my mother was white. And in the 1960s, that wasn't a great thing. So I uh, was to be given up for adoption, and I was very very grateful and fortunate that I had what they call a praying grandmother. And <laughs> my my, my great grandmother, she said, Oh no, she, she has to be in our family. And so uh, my great grandmother arranged to, uh, to take me under her wing until my parents were able to um, ultimately get married. And, you know, I ended up being in my nuclear fam- nucleus family, but, um, You know, one point about grandparents is how important grandparents are. And especially among communities of color, black communities, Latino communities, indigenous communities, and others. Um, you know, our grandparents play important and vital roles in our families and keeping our families together. And, you know, in the time of COVID-19, you know, where we are losing grandparents, you know, especially um, the indigenous population and uh, as well as our black and Latino populations are being significantly hit and impacted by COVID-19. And in fact, they have the highest rates of death among all populations that are being impacted by COVID-19. And many of those that we are losing are older individuals, you know, they're in their 50s and 60s and 70s. And, you know, for for uh, those families that are losing, you know, those grandmothers and grandfathers, um, you know, the, these are people that are important to the fabric of our families. And so this is one of the reasons why, you know, the data collection, the demographic data collection, the collection of race, ethnicity and language data is so, so important for us, both in terms of health care and public health. Uh, We really must utilize, collect and utilize that data um, to help us provide better patient care at the end of the day.
2: For instance, I have, you know, family members that are frequent the healthcare environment, many, many comorbidities. And I got a phone call from a family member, I would say a couple of weeks ago, right before we had our initial conversation and went in, you know, that he was asked certain sensitive information and he abruptly was like, why are they asking me about where I live and if I have food, I mean, I guess, you know, he felt it to be very intrusive and was very defensive and did a hard stop and would not give up any of the information and, you know, use the term, why are they all in my business? And so, you know, the purpose of this episode really is to really reach the community to say, you know, to let them know why it's so important for them to share that information. So, you know, I kind of want you to kind of dig a little bit deeper. So why should patients and families, caregivers, you know, what should they understand about SDOH data and real data that they should be sharing?
1: Yes. So, you know, in particular, the, um, I mean, we've had a lot of emphasis on the real data up to this point. And I like to say that when we're collecting this data, whether it's the real data or the social determinants of health data, um, this is where data meets culture. Mm-hmm. So this is where information that we gather from patients about who they are and the lives that they live help us to understand needs and how the healthcare system can do better. So think about disparities in health care. So one example is that we know that uh, African-Americans have a very high rate of leg amputation. This is often associated with diabetes. Well, how do we know that? How do we know to uh, associate leg amputations or that rate of leg amputations to associate that with African Americans. The only way that we know that is when we are able to take information about quality and about healthcare outcomes, and an amputation is an outcome, and be able to group that information by different categories of people. So we categorize by race, we categorize by of what we call vulnerability or level of income. We categorize by uh, accessibility, being able to access healthcare, you know, being able to access access a primary care provider. So that information is critical to helping us understand how patients are doing, but it's also critical to helping us understand how healthcare providers are doing with the delivery of care. So, you know, you hear, uh, some people, some people hear a lot about implicit bias these days. We can actually say racism. Yes. <laughs> we, we weren't able to say that before June of 2020. That's right. Okay. We can say that now mm-hmm. because The light has, has come on as my grandmother used to say, truth crushed to the earth shall rise again. Yes. And the truth has risen and we are able to talk about racism in healthcare. And so the only way for us to understand, um, if there is a disparity in the way that care is being delivered, you know, if there is some underlying Structural racism. If there's some underlying implicit bias associated with care that's being delivered, when we have the data, the demographic data, we're able to be curious and see if some of that is actually existing. Sometimes it's it, it is intentional. Sometimes it's not intentional. And I I would I would put forth that. In healthcare, people don't go into healthcare because they want to do harm to people. People go into healthcare because they want to help people. And so we really want to drive curiosity about implicit bias and utilize the data that we have to understand it so that we can do better at the end of the day. To
2: piggyback on what you said, are we collecting the right data currently? Should we be collecting um different data sets?
1: We are collecting the bare bones minimum. Okay. okay. So when I, Desiree, when I, you know, I said that um I've been an advocate for collecting race ethnicity and language data for about 12 years now. Well in healthcare, we really just started digging into the utility of data. Um, I mean it's only been about 12, 13 years. Um, that we've been doing a better job of that. And so demographic data collection, um, race, race, ethnicity, and language was the first demographic data set that we started collecting in healthcare. And we didn't do a great job of it until the Obama administration, where the Obama administration put some requirements in place under what we call meaningful use guidelines. So, in order for health systems to um, to gather uh, to to take in grants, um, they had to collect race, ethnicity, and language data. So it was a part of their overall requirements to to take in these grant fundings. And so we saw um, now that almost one hundred percent of health systems collect race, ethnicity, and language data. A very small percentage actually train their staff on how to collect it so they can do a better job of that. Uh, And less than 20% actually are utilizing the data to understand how they're delivering care in the ways that I just talked about. So that's something that we really want to see change in the coming years. And I think that we will see that under the current administration, I'm very encouraged by it. So back to your question, are we collecting the right data? So we just started talking about collecting social determinants of health data. So we are just at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to collecting that data. Um, We have not been very aggressive about collecting data on LGBTQ communities sexual orientation, and gender identity. The, these are data points that we need to be more aggressive about collecting so we understand how are people that identify as LGBTQ+, uh, how are they making out when it comes to their health outcomes? Because we know that they uh, experience greater disparities than others as well. Um, disability. So we haven't done a great job of collecting data related to disability. So um, you know that's another area where I think in the coming years we're going to do a better job. We've seen a couple of states that now require uh, disability data collection. Um, so I think that will take hold, and we'll see that spread across the country. Uh, veteran status. Veteran status is a data point that has not typically been collected in the healthcare environment, and it's very important, especially when it comes to um, behavioral healthcare. Certain conditions that may be prevalent among um, um, active duty members that have been exposed to various toxins or conditions that uh, have impacted their health. So veteran status is something else that we, we need to do a better job of collecting. So those are some of the high level data points that I would like us to see, I would like to see us do a better job at collecting.
2: Yeah, and I'll, I'll say I am very optimistic as, and you referenced the, the new administration, you know, the Biden administration, I think even before the transition came out with equity, in their transition plan as a focus. And so, you know, I can't wait to see in the upcoming months as I'm seeing active, rapid change quickly on his part that we'll definitely be able to um, push to to get. And I'm shocked to hear in all honesty that we aren't collecting the data we need, especially in the veteran population. I'm shocked, really, really shocked by by this. You know, I would expect that to be the total opposite. But, you know, my grandmother used to tell me, when you know better, you do better. That's right. So, absolutely. So, I kind of want to unpack a little bit. You know, we talked about patients and families, caregivers, why they should be sharing the information and the impact that that data is going to have in the communities. Our listening, you know, our listeners that tune in, They come from all walks. So we have patients all the way up to hospital leaders, CMS. So a lot of reach in this podcast. So I want to shift a little bit and talk about our hospital systems. So, you know, what would our hospital and health systems need to understand about data collection and especially engaging patients? You kind of hinted on that a little bit earlier and The way we collect the data, you know, is very important going back to that conversation I had with my family member. The person collecting the data, you know, he couldn't relate to that person. So he immediately felt defensive. And granted, this is a 70 year old grew up in the civil rights era. So there's already that huge level of mistrust there. So, you know, kind of unpack that a little bit for us.
1: Yes. So I think one of the one of the great misnomers in healthcare organizations is that it's easy to collect race ethnicity and language data and it's easy to configure it and that's not true so the first thing i would say is that i would like our healthcare organizations to understand that we have standard data sets we have standard categories that we would like them to adhere to, and those data categories are set forth by the uh, by CDC, and the CDC has a thin PHIN and library, and that library lays out categories of race and ethnicity, and they are consistent with the uh, Office of Management and Budget. So that's a federal agency that formulates the categories that are collected by the Census Bureau. So there are five standard categories, and I just jotted some notes down here because there's some specific things that I wanted to say to our healthcare organizations. So the five standard categories are Black, White, Indigenous, um, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and Asian. Those are our five basic, we call them minimum categories under race. And then we have a separate category under ethnicity, which is simply Hispanic or not hispanic So those are our minimum categories. That's not saying that you can't collect more granular, more detailed categories. uh, If you know that you have a prevalence of certain patient populations in your region, um, but I also like to tell our healthcare organizations to crawl before you try to walk. You know, just get the basics in order. So why are these basic categories and having all of our health systems collecting the same category so important? It's important because we ultimately want to be a a united health system across the country. We like to be able to exchange data. We like to be able to utilize this data, common data in surveys and in research. And so having consistent categories is, it it is very valuable uh, for us long term. And, you know, um, the question about separating race and ethnicity, you know, comes up frequently. And you know, people ask, "Well, you know that you know there are more ethnicities than you know Hispanic and Latino, and that is true." You know, these categories are not necessarily ethnographically oriented or correct. They are the the, the categories were actually first formulated by the Census Bureau to um, center on discrimination in housing. So. Yeah, these categories have a long history behind them. And changing the categories would so disrupt so many industries across the the country that, um, I mean, there's been some discussion about adding a category. There's been some discussion about reconfiguring categories. I can't see it happening anytime soon uh, because the disruption would be so immense. One other note that I want to make is that we often see the category of other, Um, and so this has come up in our local public health settings where uh, our health systems are reporting COVID-related data to our public health organizations, and then that data is being reported publicly. Well, the, the other category doesn't tell us anything. You know, it doesn't help us to understand how the disease is truly impacting various patient populations. And so, you know, this, I, I, I would encourage the organizations that are, li- you know, folks that are listening in today, drop the other category. It does not serve us any purpose. Um. Refused and unknown. So these are other categories that um, health systems may have and may need. So, for example, with refused, there's a patient that just doesn't want to answer the question, and that's okay. That's the patient's right. Um, unknown, you know, you might have a patient come in and they're incapacitated and can't answer the question. That's okay. Um, and you want to train your registration staff to collect the data in a way that is culturally competent so that they are asking the questions in a way that is not offensive and so that they understand that part of the job, part of the task is to help the patient make the right choice in terms of categories. So it's not up to us to look at the patient and say, hmm, that patient looks like this or that patient looks like that to me. That's not our job. Our job is to say to the patient, these are the categories of race that we have noted in our system. Which category do you consider yourself? The patient self-identifying is very important. And so we we, we, stray, we, we ask our health systems to train registration staff so that they don't stray uh, toward what we call eyeballing patients and making that decision yeah. on their behalf. So Desiree, I'm gonna take a pause. I could I could keep going on yeah,
2: and on. No, it, it, it this resonates with me and I'll say most recently in my personal life. Um everybody most people know electronic health records, my chart apps and things that patients can go in patient portals, right? So I was looking for something, those that tune in on a regular basis know my daughter's got an extensive medical history and why I even came into this space. But I was looking in her, um, my chart, looking for something for some other physician that's outside of the system. And I looked at her profile, just happened to click on it, and in her profile, her demographic information was all wrong. Like her ethnicity was white. And and I was just like, well, who collected this? So I'm sitting there looking at it. And my younger son was in here with me because normally they're doing school with me. And he looked at it and he said, mom, why is Deontz white? And I said, I didn't put that. I mean, I guess they assume because I'm very fair complexion. The time my hair was very, I don't know. But it kind of made me take a pause and I was like, well, who collected this? As I know, as I'm swimming in data every day in my work and and, in personal life, it's like who collected this and who made the assumption without even, I can honestly tell you, no one asked me any information. They assumed what they thought and just put it in there. And I was like, okay, you know, this is strange kind of thing, but you know it just resonates that the fact that it is very important. I'm a seasoned patient advocate and it made me take kind of like a pause as we're always in this healthcare system. They see my family, they see my husband and my husband is very dark complexion and I'm like, "Well, why would you put this here?" So it just it I don't know, it made me take a a second act of pause. Yes. And yeah, it was off-putting, I'll say, not that there's nothing wrong with being white. It's just that that's not my, me and my family. And so who put that there? Who made that assumption? It it really kind of threw me back a little bit.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It, 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 woo. Desiree, I, I, I relate to that because um, I have experienced the same thing with my demographic data. So I identify as Black, and, you know, have gone into my chart and, you know, and seeing my race noted as white. And, you know, the question that I have at, when I see that is, hmm, what other assumptions are they making that are inaccurate about me? And how will that impact my care? You know, ultimately, I mean, it, it, it affects the patient's trust in the system. And this is another reason why it's important to get it right. Um, so, you know, in addition to um, getting it right on behalf of the patient, it's also important to our data. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, our quality improvement uh, directors, when our population health managers you know, go to actually utilize the data, they need to have a reliable data set. And, you know, I'll tell you what happens frequently is, I remember I I said that, um, you know, only about 20% of health systems are actually stratifying a single quality measure. So, um, what happens often is a health equity champion within a health system will go in, um, you know, to start a project, they they will request uh, data from their analytics team. And um, they'll see the race and ethnicity data, and they'll see, you know, 10, 15% unknowns, unavailables, or declined. And that does not give them a good look at their patient data. So now they have to start the process of training staff to collect that data. So it's, it's, you know, almost a restart uh, yeah. for them. So, you know, that's another another reason why it's important to uh, train staff to collect the data.
2: Again, to our listeners, you know, it starts with leadership. Like, if your leadership at your organization, your health system, deems this as important, then they'll put the resources. and And I. Am saying boldly here today, if you're listening, you have to not only, you know, talk the talk, but walk the walk. If it's important to your hospital system and your patient community, then you'll put the resources that you need to put into the training for the staff. Make sure that everyone that's in that encounter has what they need to be successful. That's the only way this is gonna get better and change. And, you know, I think about the Census Bureau. You think about the campaigns. I, and maybe it's just me, but I've noticed in the past, this last census collection, we were inundated with radio, TV, mailings. It was an enormous amount of resources that the Census Bureau put in to ensure that communities fill out the census. And this is why. And that I'm sure, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, was not a cheap campaign, but they put the resources behind it to make sure that people fill out the census and they knew why. It wasn't just, oh, fill this out. No, if you don't fill this out, your communities don't get the funding it needs. That's and right. put that information. So, you know, not to pull on anybody's coattails, but please, 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 we urge you to really take this seriously and really look at what you can do in your health systems. And I'll say my patient advocates, patient partners, if you're listening, push, push, push your systems to do more. So yeah, that's, that's, I'm gonna get off my soapbox because I know we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but any last parting thoughts, Lisa, before I kind of close us out and let you go?
1: Well, Desiree, I've been on that soapbox for 12 <laughs> years. So <laughs> trust me, I, I appreciate the company up on that soapbox. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I jotted down a couple of statistics. Yeah, please and, give, a,
2: give us the stats.
1: And I, I just wanted to, so uh, Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, so they estimate that health disparities cost us $93 billion in medical costs, excess uh-huh. medical costs and $42 billion in lost productivity. So it's a, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a huge cost to our country. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we can break it down, you know, at the local level and I mean, there is so much data available. If you, if you Google uh, health disparities research, you get more than 300 million hits. I'm um, not saying that all of that is research, but when you get 350 million hits, you know you have a lot of research out there. So it's time to take action. It's time Very to, you know, as you said earlier, it's time to walk the walk. Um, You know, it's not, it's past time for studying, it's past time for research, it's past time for talking about it. It's time to take action, put it on the front burner and make it happen. And race, ethnicity, language, data collection is the first step. You know, healthcare organizations, they, they um our leadership loves outcomes and accomplishments. They love, I mean, that's the sexy stuff, you know, <laughs> yes. the stuff that they can publish on. Okay. And and I would say that before you get to the sexy stuff, you got to do the unsexy stuff, which is actually the process of collecting the data and getting it right. So, you know, do that and you get the payoff uh, on the other side. I
2: love it. I love it. Well, you know, uh, Miss Lisa, this has been a wonderful conversation and a pleasure. Please tell our listeners your name again, your company name, if you have a website, so that they may be able to contact you. I'm sure there may be some hospital systems like, okay, I need to get in touch with her. So please give our listeners a way for them to get in touch with you.
1: Yes. So my name is Lisa Sloan. My company name is. More Inclusive Healthcare. Our website is moreinclusivehealthcare.com. And I can be reached at 855-645-6456. So that's our uh, company telephone number. So feel free to dial it and uh, leave me a message or who knows, I might just pick up. (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, Love it, love it, love it. Well, we cannot end this podcast without thanking our wonderful partner and sponsor in this work, Dr. Natasha Washington at ATW Health Solutions. We could not make this happen without her. So as always, guys, you know, I'm going to add, please be safe. Wash your hands, social distance, wear your mask, and as always, be engaged.
1: Follow the PP community online at ATWHealth.com